0: Today on Agnews Daily.
1: For, for a long time, and, and represents a, a very significant demand source for agriculture, not just corn, but other commodities that connect the corn and then ultimately providing the you know, byproducts that are used as a feed source and, and potential for ethanol as well.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here in the Agnews Daily podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, you are back home. You are hanging out with your family. It probably feels good to be done with college for a little while.
2: It certainly does. And we get a little bit of an extended break. Although I did graduate, I'm going back for my master's. I'm going back for my master's and with COVID restrictions, we are not having a spring break this spring semester. So we get to start a week later than normal. So
0: I get a little bit over a month of a break. Oh, wow. That'll be a long time. You'll probably be ready to go back to school, I'm guessing, by the time that's over.
2: Oh, I probably will. I'm not going to stay with my family that entire time because I have been out of the house for a while now. So I think it would just really throw off their mojo. In fact, every time I come home, my younger sister, she gets mad at me because it's kind of like the Ashton show and she's used to being the only child now because she's the only one that lives with my parents. And so she gets a little bit upset when I come home and it kind of just throws everybody off. So I'm not going to stay with them for the full month and a half.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's probably best for everyone's sanity.
2: Oh, absolutely. Especially with COVID and we're all in the house together, like all the time. It uh, kind of wrecks my sanity for sure. Mm -hmm.
0: I understand. Family time can be a lot sometimes after living uh, under your own roof for a while and then going back and seeing family and other parents and stuff. But it's a good time of year. But Ashton, because you brought up COVID, I want to bring this first piece of news to light here as we continue to watch Congress look to pass this massive funding bill. They've only got two days left to keep the government funded to pass a full fiscal year bill. We, of course, know they have a an extension going on right now, but that's about to run out. And they also have just two days left to figure out what they're going to do about this coronavirus relief package. We've got a few different ones floating around right now, but the one we've been talking about the most is that $908 billion coronavirus relief package. And details of the COVID package had not been released as of Wednesday, but it appears that there is a sense of urgency to get it done this week, according to Senate Democratic Whip Dick Durbin of Illinois. This draft that was making the rounds included a few different pieces for agriculture, some of which includes a dairy donation program that would reimburse processors for donated dairy products. And it earmarks about $9.9 billion for ag producers and processors affected from the economic fallout of coronavirus, including contract poultry growers. So we will keep our ears to the ground. It sounds like this thing is really ramping up here. Hopefully we'll be ramping up because they only have a few days left here before Congress heads into recess. And among that bill, we don't know, like I said there, the specifics of the bill yet, but the ethanol industry is still gunning and hoping that the bill includes some aid for the ethanol biofuels industry as well. So we will continue to keep updated on that story. Don't know for sure if we will see any sort of COVID package even pass, but it's scrunch time for Congress.
2: It certainly is, Delaney, and I have a bit of an update myself because I believe it was yesterday that I reported on Australia putting forth an appeal to the World Trade Organization and China has actually come out and made a statement about this appeal Earlier today, they expressed regret over Australia's appeal to the WTO on China's barley tariffs, adding that it will proceed according to WTO dispute settlement mechanism. And I haven't seen anything from the World Trade Organization itself on how they're going to handle this appeal. And of course, it will take some time to go through the process. But just another thing, Delaney, that we're going to have to keep our eyes out on.
0: Absolutely, Ashton. And here's something that we've kind of sort of been watching, but probably not as closely as we should. And that is uh, trade negotiations going on right now between Brazil and China. It Rumors, I should say, are circulating that they appear to be close to an agreement that would allow the world's second largest corn exporter to boost sales of Corn specifically, but also China, uh, soybeans and other products to China, which is, of course, a move that could threaten the United States' ability to export products to China. So, we're seeing talks right now between the governments of Brazil and China in some pretty advanced stages. It sounds like there's a few technical issues, from what I understand, and a few technical barriers related to preventing the spread of pests or crop disease. So, chemical issues there, you know, China's very anti pesticide, herbicide, etc., as well as a few issues related to traits that the Brazilians would be able to use. But it does sound like negotiators are moving right along. And like I said, this could be really quite detrimental for U.S. exports moving forward. If we see something solidified in a trade deal that included some sort of free trade between the two countries or some sort of reason for China to turn primarily to Brazil for their grain needs.
2: Well, Delaney, I have another update here, and it's talking about the investigation of a Tyson Foods facility in Waterloo, Iowa. I believe you reported on it earlier this month, maybe back in November. But the investigation, just to recap, was led by former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder, and it was a response to a lawsuit filed by the son of a worker at the Tyson facility who died in April of complications from the virus. And there were plant managers who were taking bets um, reportedly on workers catching the virus and they allowed sick employees to continue working and Tyson Foods has actually come out on Wednesday yesterday that it had fired seven managers at that Waterloo pork plant after investigating the allegations and that was just a small recap for that story. I hadn't heard too much come from the investigation, but those seven plant managers have been fired from Tyson Foods.
0: They certainly have, Ash, and I'm glad you brought that story to light. I think it officially happened yesterday, but uh, missed it yesterday before we recorded the podcast. Um You know Tyson issued some generic blanket statements about the fact that those individuals didn't represent Tyson's core values pretty standard stuff I think when something like this happens for a company to stay on fourth and say that that's not part of the values that they encompass but uh, interesting to see that they did at least take some quick action on this issue but Ashton I tell you what another story I'm watching develop here is a new lawsuit that Iowa Supreme Court is going to hear uh, primarily with a nutrient pollution case. Lawyers for environmental groups and the state of Iowa are currently tangled into a state Supreme Court case as of Wednesday over whether a case challenging Iowa's voluntary nutrient reduction strategy should be allowed to proceed. Now, just to give you a little background, in case you're not familiar with Iowa's nutrient reduction strategy, this really was spearheaded largely by former Secretary of Agriculture, Bill Northey, who's of course now in the USDA office working underneath Secretary Purdue. Along with current Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag, this Iowa nutrient reduction strategy, as it mentions, there is a voluntary program and really was the efforts behind this voluntary program were to help with any sort of concerns that farmers weren't taking care of their soil, of their water, etc. And so we saw, you know, the court case for. Uh, Gosh, four or five years ago now, with the Des Moines Waterworks, where they had sued a few Iowa counties, saying that they were polluting the water. This nutrient reduction strategy was really kind of in response to that, and really helped develop Iowa's idea of how to reduce concerns for folks not living on a farm. You know that Iowa was being um, cognizant of their their practices and what they were doing to help with you know, improving soil quality, water quality, etc. So this argument, much of which is focused on whether the groups Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement and Food and Water Watch, and to put this again in perspective, Iowa's Citizens for Community Improvement, they're not really concerned about it. They're a very extremist group that often We see them come forth when new hog facilities are going up, when new chicken facilities are going up, poultry facilities. They make a muck of things. And so it sounds like this group and now the Food and Water Watch are making a muck of the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy. And they are bringing a claim forward saying that this is not a great program to be a part of. And so Iowa Solicitor General Jeff Jeff Thompson said that they have not yet met the standing point in part because they had sued, not yet sued the right people, although he didn't say exactly who they should have sued instead of the state of Iowa. But the group's complaint named the state of Iowa, the Department of Natural Resources, the Environmental Protection Commission and the Natural Resources Commission and the commissioners themselves, as well as the Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship. And essentially, it's saying that this Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy is not working. It's not doing anything. Um, The groups are basically seeking declarations that the legislation's decision in 2018 to codify this program as voluntary is unconstitutional and that the state has violated its duty to protect the Raccoon River for public use. So it's a big, big muck, muckery of a mess. But the other reason that this is so important, I believe, um Iowa was definitely a leader when it comes to things like this. This Iowa nutrient reduction strategy was definitely one of the first of its kinds and a lot of other states followed suit and put together similar programs. And so if we see something happen here legally, it may never make it to any sort of, you know, trial type of case, but I think a lot of other states and a lot of other extremist groups will be watching to see how this goes and then decide whether or not to do something similar in states around the country. So it's, again, a a little preliminary in the warning, but I I just get fascinated by stuff like this, and I'm also a little concerned about groups like these, Ashton.
2: Well, Delaney, like you said, sounds a bit like a muckery of a mess, and it's certainly a lot to digest, but I want to shift focus here and talking about Florida researchers, because they have designed corn that is able to handle heat stress. We know that Corn, of course, thrives in hot, humid days and cool nights in order to fill kernels and climate change is being pointed at the reason for causing nighttime temperatures across the Corn Belt to rise, which robs corn of its full yield potential. So researchers at the University of Florida have engineered a plant that can handle the stress of that nighttime heat and produce dramatically increased yields. The researchers at the University of Florida used CRISPR technology to move a key protein within the plant to boost heat resistance. The newly engineered corn was planted side by side with non-engineered corn in a University of Florida test plot south of the the Gainesville, Florida campus. The engineered plants, which experienced the most heat stress, showed a 40% yield advantage over the non-engineered varieties. The researchers note that the study will enable the development of new heat-resistant corn using traditional plant breeding, so I thought that that was definitely interesting, especially since a lot of our listeners are in and around the Corn Belt.
0: Absolutely, that is fascinating stuff, and I guess it makes sense that it would be developed somewhere much warmer than Iowa, because we know if it can hold up down there in Florida, it can probably hold up here in Iowa, you'd think, right?
2: Oh, I would definitely think so. I've been to Florida a few times, and it's definitely, even being from Texas, and Texas is, you know, the the heat state, known known for our really hot summers, but I can't even imagine a Florida summer.
0: No, I can't either, I, I, but I think the heat is a little bit different. It's dry heat here in Iowa, probably down there in Texas Ashton, and down there, I think it's, or opposite, it's humid heat here in Iowa, probably, um, drier heat in Florida, maybe not now that I'm saying that because they're also on the coast. I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not a meteorologist.
2: (laughs) Sounds like we're gonna have to have a meteorologist when they do come back on to talk about weather, they might have to explain that to
0: us. (laughs) They might, They might. I'm getting myself all mixed around now, but I tell you what, I have just one other piece of news here which will lead us nicely into the markets for today. Talking first, before we talk markets, about export sales. Although we're just three and a half months into this year's marketing year, Export sales are now at 90 percent of the USDA's annual estimates, according to the latest export data. Of course, the caveat here is that the U.S. marketing year is usually front loaded with sales between the months of September to February to, of course, China and other countries until we see South America finish up their harvest and begin to fill those gaps in really starting in February when their production season is pretty much over. So that's an interesting little piece of news that has definitely pushed markets higher for today. Ashton, what do you say we take a look at where markets ended? Let's do it. Let's do it. And like I mentioned, markets really pushed higher today. Soybeans are now closing above $12. They've pushed through that resistance level, you know, 12 12- dollars really was the level we've been watching. Analysts have been watching. We're going to talk about that more on Monday, of course, with our Market Monday conversation. But in the meantime, March corn up five and a half cents, excuse me, five and a quarter cents today to close at 4.32 and a half. The nice up a penny and a half to close at 4.15. In the Swaving Pits, huge moves to the upside today as the January contract closed just above $12 at 12.01 and a quarter. The March up 17 and a half to close at 12.05 and a half. Chicago wheat also higher on the day as the March contract added 10 and a quarter cent to close at 6.08 and three quarters. The D sub nine and three quarters to close at 6.13 and a half. And in livestock green across the cattle complex as the February live cattle contract added 67.5 cents to close at 114.45. The April up 60 to close at 118.42.5. In feeders, January up 12.5 cents today to close at 140.97. The March up 62.5 to close at 142.60. And in lean hogs, weakness today as the February contract shed 47.5 cents to close at 65.50. The April down 2 cents to close at 69.30. Rounding on our markets for today with the Class 3 dairy milk Futures, January down 48 cents to close at 1565, the February down 70 to close at 1660. Ashton, without further ado, remind us what we're talking about for today's interview. Today, we are going to be featuring part two of the nasb
2: 20 session talking about the financial status of agriculture.
3: I'll start if that's OK. And that is, you know, you cover those seven states. Are there regional or state by state differences that are significant on some of the information that that you shared or are working on for 2020?
1: There there have been some regional differences, and I would say the first that is important to recognize is probably um, those areas that are most concentrated in corn and soybeans have seen maybe the most significant improvement relative to what we would have been seeing in april and the reason that i would highlight those industries is is not just because of the significance that those commodities represent in u.s agriculture global agriculture but just recognizing the the magnitude of increase of what we've seen what we've seen for for example in commodity prices Um, soybeans is is really worth highlighting Um, and again much of that being driven by some of the recent export strength, obviously some concerns about production, which, you know, boosted prices here domestically. So I would, I would highlight that area specifically. Um, one of the trends that we've been observing the last several years, and I think that this is still relevant for this year, is that there are differences as you move across this region, but I would say that it holds true also nationally based on uh, the quality of land. So as you look at land that is, has been highly productive, where um, you, you know, there's just generally been stronger support for land values in particular um, financial conditions have generally been stronger there. So for our district, that means, you know, as you move from we don't we don't cover Iowa, but as you move from Iowa to eastern Nebraska and then into western Nebraska or look at western Kansas. The productivity of that land is very different, and the strength and demand for land across that region is is consistent with what you would then expect to see as it relates to production. So those areas that have been most highly productive have have tended to fare a little bit better than others. Um, It's tended to be the case the last several years that those areas closest to um, some of our urban or metro markets have also been a bit stronger. Um, So I think that's also important context coming into this.
3: Any questions from the group of participants with us? I'm, I'm going to ask another if that's okay, and we'll wait for folks. If, if you do have a question, please uh, either message or come on screen and feel free to ask Nate uh, a couple of questions. You know, you referenced some of the government payments, and now that the administration has, um, will be, uh, hopefully um, soon uh, finalize and we'll know how 2020 is going to look. What about, you know, other maybe national policy and just the, the new administration's view on agriculture policies, rules, regs? Does that uh, have you concerned or what are your thoughts uh, going forward as far as the economy uh, for agriculture?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's an important question. I think that it's uh, honestly, and not to dodge the question, it's probably going to take a little time to play out and see what some of those priorities ultimately look like for the administration. Um, I think that it is worth highlighting, you know, the the potential shift to something that would be um, supportive of renewables and thinking about what that might look like. Um, ethanol has been a pretty key component of our renewable source, uh, you know, for, for a long time and and represents a, a very significant demand source for agriculture, not just corn, but other commodities that connect to corn and then ultimately providing, you know, byproducts that are used as a feed source and, and potential for ethanol as well. So I think that that's going to be one to pay attention to specifically as it relates to, uh, environmental and renewable sorts of policies um i think alongside that though there have been other initiatives if you think about just the general path of electric vehicles as an example um you know that that represents something else that's kind of in this mix as well in addition to ethanol where there could be a different kind of um you know mix of of energy that that that's going to have implications for agriculture so i think that it's probably too early to tell on some of the specific policies but i think where there's where we've heard a lot of concern from the lenders that we talked to and producers themselves comes down to specifically the direct payments. And, and, we do, and we don't know right now what the outlook might be for some of those payments, but, you know, we went from market facilitation program payments in 2018 and 19 to then CPAP in 2020. And those payments in each of the past three years have been highlighted as, um, you know, very important in terms of the viability of operations from one year to the next. Um, but at the same time concerns that that's not necessarily a a viable long-term solution. So there ultimately needs to be more focus on, for example, uh, a return to discussions on trade and and thinking about that as a key source of demand. So I think all of those things will emerge in time, but it's probably not immediately clear exactly what direction we might take.
3: We do have a question from Michael Clements uh, on, uh, is there a model that predicts an increase in bankruptcies as the pandemic continues?
1: So as a, as some context for that one, I guess what I would say is what we've been seeing for the past four to five years is modest increases, not just in bankruptcies, but just generally challenges um, financially. So um, that means increases in delinquencies, it might mean um, increases in missed payments or slower repayment, um, and that that ultimately has translated into challenges. The nuance to that though is that the past several years, many of those bankruptcies that we have been seeing were specifically in dairy and, and more specifically were among some of our small to mid-sized dairies in the upper Midwest, thinking about Wisconsin and Minnesota specifically. Those aren't necessarily the only places that we had seen increased bankruptcies. You know, we've also seen some that would be in your more traditional corn, soybean type operations in the, in the Midwest and Central Plains. Um, but those had been relatively modest. Um, there was an expectation, again, in the early months of the pandemic, that if conditions were to persist as they had, then we would see a much larger increase in bankruptcies, maybe even regardless of size or commodity concentration. But I think that it's probably reasonable on the basis of the data that we've seen the past couple of months to expect that that's probably not going to be the case. I think it's likely to, to imagine that we might still see some of the Challenges that would be more on trend with what we've seen from the past several years where challenges with liquidity have ultimately caused some pressure for some borrowers, but that that's not necessarily a story of the averages. So not necessarily a model and, you know, 2020, if there ever was a year where models are difficult to make work is an example of that. Uh, but I think that that's probably how I would, how I would see conditions evolving the next couple of months.
3: A question from Ron Hayes in Oklahoma. Beef cattle, a major part of the Kansas City-fed area, what is your outlook for 2021 and what are the issues you are watching closely?
1: So cattle, that's a good question. And cattle is an interesting one because it connects more significantly to how consumers might be positioned and how the global economy fares relative to some other markets. Corn, for example, um, you know, is going to rely on ethanol. It's going to be, you know, a feed source that goes into obviously exports and you know the positive news again on China as it relates to corn. Cattle, though, is, is different in the sense that some of the the value added in that industry and, and obviously the price formulation is going to depend on um, what demand looks like for certain cuts of meat products and ultimately that is a key source of demand um, both in the United States and globally. So as we talk about the outlook for cattle and beef, it's going to hinge probably more significantly on the path forward for the pandemic and 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 as it relates to things like shutdowns and lockdowns. Um, and the reason for that is because as consumers are looking to make purchases, the kinds of meat products that they buy, again, are quite different if they're buying those in restaurants, which may or may not be closed in some states, versus if they're buying those products in grocery stores. And ultimately, that feeds back into prices that producers are going to see for cattle, um, you know, and as it works its way through packing plants and, and the supply chain. So that's that's one that we're following and probably connects more to how we would see the path for COVID, the path for pandemic and ultimately reopening and, uh, you know, the vaccine. So I, I think that that's something that is worth commenting just to the extent that it, t- it ties back into some of the more macroeconomic developments.
3: One more question from our chat and then we'll open it up and uh, folks can ask their questions um, from from their computer. But we do have a question from Lynn Henderson, and that is uh, what are producers doing with the payments they received from the government?
1: Well, I can say what my hope is that they might be doing with some of those payments, and I'm not sure how much I can say definitively with what they might be doing with those payments. I think my hope would be that there's recognition of the stress that we were facing in agriculture coming into 2020 and that many of those pressures might still exist in 2021 or even 2022. And so, you know, one um, you know, one thought then would be to try to shore up working capital. Um, lenders, when they are assessing risk in their portfolio have been extremely focused on working capital and liquidity because that's where the concerns have been centered. And so for producers, um, you know, obviously they're going to want to get a sense of what their own level of risk might be, knowing their production costs, knowing break even costs, but ultimately focusing in on what is their working capital available to help absorb any potential shock because there still is a fair amount of uncertainty as we go forward. Um, you know, it is, it is year end. And so, you know, many operators, as they have in years past, are thinking about, you know, what sorts of capital investments, purchases and things they meet, may need for the next year. And so I would suspect that that's also, you know, very much on the table, thinking about prepaying input costs or some of those things are probably some of the decisions that, that producers are facing. Um, but, you know, I, I think, again, it's worth noting that the payments being made at a time when you know, we're also seeing increases in prices is, is worth um, highlighting just the, the strength here more recently. Nathan, this is Gail Cunningham from Wixie Classic Radio out of Champaign, Illinois. I guess I'd like to get your take a little bit about uh, if the new administration comes in, their economic policies. How do you see uh, some of the uh, what we see as ground level policies now that's being touted by the new administration as it might affect the ag economy do you see anything and if so what what might that be um and you know as i mentioned earlier i think it's going to take some time to see how some of those policies play out but not just the policies themselves how they might be pursued you know you might it's it's worth rem- reminding people that prior to this pandemic we had been talking a lot about trade um 2018 and 2019 as we interacted with lenders and producers nationally that was that was the top concern, um, you know. So we had been thinking about not just NAFTA, but trade disputes with China, potential new, um, you know, trading agreements among other countries. Uh, trade had really been in, in the forefront, and the reason that it had been at the forefront is because we had several consecutive years of very strong production, and inventories and production had been weighing on prices. And so with those very high inventories, there was a need to be exploring. <coughs> trade as a pretty key source of demand so i don't necessarily have a lot to add in terms of what those policies might be as they unfold with respect to trade but we know from past experience that all of our trading relationships have taken time to build and significant focus and so i think that some of the discussion is likely to return to those aspects pertaining to trade Um, again i do think that um, you know policies that connect back to renewables and sustainable agriculture environment are likely to also be a bit more prominent than maybe what we've seen in in the past just based on, on on some of the you know the initial assessments so any specifics are hard to say at this point but i think that those are worth paying attention to as we move forward the next couple of months
3: nancy hood has a question hi nate can you hear me i can hear you fantastic i am a phd student at texas tech university uh, working in ad communications, I'm wondering um, how. If you have any specifics on how the fruit and vegetable industry is responding to this pandemic, I know there was a lot of
1: um, dumping of crops in the fields because of packaging issues. And it, it, have you looked at that at all? Um, you know, the 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 trend that we've seen there are developments in fruits and vegetables has actually been similar in a broad sense. Um, as to what we've seen nationally, which is to say that those supply chain concerns that we were very concerned about in April and May have abated fairly significantly. There are still some cases where concerns about COVID-19, for example, are um, are something worth paying attention to, and especially as it relates to fruit and vegetable operations, because they would have um, more dependence on labor than what we would see, for example, among grain operations where mechanization and, and capital tends to be a bit more a bit more prominent. So it's not to suggest that all of the issues there are necessarily resolved, but where there has been even more strength as it relates to revenue, prices, receipts and some of those sorts of things, um, fruits and vegetables have fared a little bit better than some of our more standardized commodities that would we would think about in the in the Midwest and Central Plains. So labor was one of the main concerns coming into 2020 for, you know, a lot of those specialty types of uh, specialty product operations in addition to trade. Um, again, I, I think it's worth keep coming back to trade because I, I think that that's going to be one that as as some of the concerns around the pandemic start to fade and we worry less about supply chain disruptions and travel and things that are unique to this time period, it's likely to be the case that we're going to return to the kinds of things that we were talking about prior which were labor and and trade um, and and water as you look at the West Coast. So, you know, those are probably the things that are going to emerge again. But for the time being, again, I would say as as they have nationally.
3: Spencer Chase, AgriPulse.
1: Hi, Nate. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Terrific. Uh, appreciate yeah. you making time for NAFB here today. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, no matter what happened in the election, I think it was widely assumed that we weren't going to see the same level of direct payment support offered to producers uh, in the next four years that we've seen in the last four. Wondering uh, your assessment on what that will do in terms of farm financial health to some of these operations that might have uh, you know, really, really needed some of those direct payments in order to stay afloat. Uh, do do we get enough of a recovery in income to keep those operations afloat, or do uh, some some folks need to end up filing bankruptcy just as a result of the loss of those direct payments? Yeah, it's going to be an important question. There's obviously a lot of uncertainty, and, and I'll try to answer that in a, in a couple of different ways. The first is, again, coming back to the observation that those government payments are accounting for about 40% of net farm income. It conveniently works out that farm income is around $100 billion in 2020, so it's easy to then back into a number that says that that's about $60 billion. I'm I'm obviously rounding and and simplifying there. Um, If you take off those government payments, it does represent a decline in, in farm income. This would have been though before the increases that we saw in commodity prices here more recently. So again, China started placing some really large orders for soybeans and corn specifically in August. And we've started to see some of those exports pick up, still a long ways from meeting the phase one agreements, but, it, but it's presented a more optimistic view for commodity prices. So once you build in those increases in commodity prices, you're probably back to a, a, you're at least closer to a point where you could say that farm income, at least nationally, again, high level is, is closer to where we had been in the years prior, which is not necessarily a great picture, but it's much better than what we would have seen, for example, in April and May when those payments were going to be very, very critical. So as we go into 2021, um, you know, my, my guess on this is that if we were to not see payments being made to that extent we probably would see a little bit more financial pressure on the order of how we had been seeing that progress in the years prior to 2020 which again was not negligible but it was also pretty modest and allowed a lot of producers to think about how they might reposition so it's a big number it's a big source of uncertainty Um, i think for some operations it's going to still be critical But the recovery in commodity prices, if it persists, I think will mitigate some of that, uh, some of those concerns um, to a significant extent.
3: Okay, let's uh, try Brent Adams. He has his hand up. Brent?
1: Yeah, Nate, I was wondering if you're seeing any cause for optimism when looking at farm equipment, manufacturing or sales? Um, you know, there, I would say that it I, I wouldn't go so far as to say optimistic in the medium term, but it's, it, but it's definitely turned a little bit more optimistic alongside this, the same sorts of developments as it relates to cash generation, government supports, and farm income the last few months. When we were looking at this back in April and May, um, and, and again, you know, remind people that, um, you know, there were plants that were shutting down in a number of different segments of the economy. They were concerned about what, if any, uh, source of demand there would be for products, uh, there was a lot of concern, uh, you know, commodity prices, again, to to reiterate this, off by 25 to 30%. Um, even Even with government payments in 2020, there was maybe a view before we started to see a recovery in commodity prices that even if we got something stronger in 2020, there would not be the income source in 2021 to then support a more favorable view longer term into 2022, for example. I think as we've seen some of the recovery in incomes, and I don't want to necessarily overstate this, but the, the developments and the changes that we've seen since April and May are pretty significant. And so I think that the views in, in that segment of the industry would also be more positive alongside some of the same you know, developments related to things like ethanol.
4: Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter Podcast heard on the Global AG Network. It needs to be recognised that all tires are attacked by both heat and the ultraviolet rays of the sun. It matters little if the tire is on a vehicle, farm machine or being stored. This assault dries out and hardens the rubber and leads to cracking and premature failure. When the rubber undergoes this effect, the stiffness will first reveal itself with an increase in noise followed by decreased ride quality and traction. It is best to store tires out of the sun and in a location that does not rise much above the ambient temperature. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet.
2: Again, I, I was going to say again, a big thank you. I was going to pull a Delaney and say a thank you to the NAFP 20 session, but uh, I guess I really can't do that, but it's fascinating to listen to the financial status of agriculture, especially during COVID-19 times. And I'm I'm just glad that those folks were able to ask their questions, even though it was a virtual event, which is obviously something that we have been talking about a lot here on the podcast as the pandemic continues.
0: Absolutely. And it's something we're going to continue to talk about as more virtual events continue to happen. As we see things really shifting here, the way we've done things, obviously the way we work is a lot different now with the pandemic. But thankfully, you always have us on the go with you virtually. You can listen to us on any podcasting platform or you can catch up with any past episodes you might have mixed at agnewsdaily.com. Ashen, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.